Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a more perfect union. I'm Nick Remesong. Joining me this week from our roundtable of regulars, we have uh, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalia Linos, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, our old friend Frank Falvey, and our very special guest today is Pastor Jacob Juncker from the Franklin United Methodist Church. Thank you very much for joining us today, Pastor. I appreciate it. Well, the state of Massachusetts is required under General Laws Part 1, Title 2, Chapter 23B, Section 30, to, quote, administer a program of emergency housing assistance to needy families with children and pregnant women with no other children. This is the right to shelter law that has been on the books for exactly 40 years. Now, just this past Monday, Governor Maura Healey delivered a message at the State House to those aforementioned families, and that was, we don't have room for you. I quote, we are not ending the right to shelter law. We are being very clear, though, that we are not going to be able to guarantee placement for folks who are sent here after the end of this month, end quote. Now, currently in the state's emergency shelter system, there are 7,000 families, half of whom are migrants, and just over 23,000 individuals, half of whom are children. Based on the system's current limit of 7,500 families, it is not at all inconceivable that the system will indeed reach its capacity in just over a week. Dwindling shelter, dwindling funds, more than 11,000 school-aged children, and a marked lack of federal support, all elements of a disaster, but also elements of an opportunity to serve those around us in need. Just what that service might look like will be our topic this morning. Uh, would anyone like to kick us off with that? I'm sure everybody's got thoughts on it. Well, I suppose I can I can kick it off since uh, I do uh, work for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And, you indeed uh, do, Jeff. <laughs> and I'm quite familiar with this program. So first of all, I think folks should understand that, uh, yes, the right to shelter law has been on the books for 40 years, and it is for people to make sure that people are not suffering without housing. And this particular program was put into place to protect uh, uh, children, uh, particularly, and uh, mothers and fathers of children uh, to make sure that they have a head over their, uh, a roof over their heads, and access to education. And we've had a crisis of people coming into this country, escaping from uh, real deplorable conditions in other countries. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and said, hey, I'm going to head to Massachusetts because that's a, a, a great place. They're, they're coming here because they're escaping 
and leaving horrible conditions. And I like to remind people when I talk about this subject that I have uh, grandparents, three of my four grandparents were immigrants coming from terrible conditions uh, in other countries and coming to America, which was uh, the place that they could uh, grow and uh, you know start a business, get a job, and uh, live out the American dream. And I often say to folks, and I did this in my first speech that I did on the House floor back in 2014, I talked about my great-grandparents and grandparents who came to this country and contributed to what this country is all about. Uh, in the House chamber, there uh, is a freeze under the ceiling with 53 names of 53 people who contributed to making Massachusetts what it was. And I said, my great-grandparents and grandparents' names could be up on that freeze because they contributed to making Massachusetts a great place to live and work. And, and I just thought of how they would feel seeing me in this room on this particular day um, because you know, they truly did live the American dream. And uh, now they've got a, a grandson and a great grandson who's actually furthering uh, their uh, American dream. So I, I put this all in context with that and providing opportunities for others. And, uh, you know, there are some myths out there about uh, who are coming and who are here. And uh, I repeatedly hear from people that uh, these are all undocumented and illegal aliens invading our uh, Commonwealth and our community, because Franklin is indeed housing uh, some of the migrants. Uh, and that's a myth. All of the people who are here are here with the knowledge and permission of the Department of Homeland Security. So that should be said at the very outset. I'm going to repeat it. Everyone who is here is here with the knowledge and consent of the Department of Homeland Security, which means they entered the country and were processed. They haven't had their hearing yet as to whether or not they qualify, but they, ha uh, they have been processed by the United States government. So to refer to them as illegal or undocumented is, is not only unfair and unjust, it's untrue. And uh, so uh, what we have is a system that was overwhelmed by the number of people coming into the Commonwealth. And it's not just the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that people are coming to. They're coming to uh, states all over the country exactly, uh, yeah. and, and, and coming in because they, they need assistance. Let me give you a little bit of the stats of what's happening in Franklin, because I'm sure that people uh, uh, want to know. So as of last week, there were 83 families at the Best Western Hotel uh, occupying 85 rooms, and 73 school-aged children are among those uh, who are living uh, in the Best Western Hotel. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts just last week released a dashboard that uh, will show you uh, the uh, the range of numbers and uh, towns and communities where uh, these folks are are there. And uh, finally, I'll say uh, I'm amazed and pleased with the welcoming attitude by the majority of the residents of Franklin who have welcomed these people in, who have offered assistance. I'm particularly proud of my uh, dear friends and colleagues at the SAFE Coalition who have stepped up to the plate to offer some support services. Unfortunately, uh, providing uh, social uh, services, which is 
part of the obligation of the Commonwealth to these uh, residents has fallen short because there simply aren't enough people who are taking uh, jobs in the human services industry. So it's tough to find people to provide these social services. So we've had many organizations, both uh, religious groups, and I'm sure that Pastor Yonka can talk about uh, what the interfaith uh, community has been doing, but the Safe Coalition is involved. I, I know the Fish Organization has been involved. St. Vincent de Paul has been involved, all stepping up to the plate to offer services to these uh, people in need. And again, I want to reiterate, these are not illegal, undocumented people. They are people who are here with the consent and knowledge of the United States government. And, uh, you know, as human beings, we offer our assistance to help them get back on their feet, uh, hopefully uh, find jobs. Uh, one of the real drawbacks is that uh, the federal government has not issued work permits for these folks, and there's a delay in the processing of these work permits. So uh, it's tough for them to find jobs because many companies will not employ people unless they have working papers. So I think that uh, lays the groundwork and the foundation for our discussion today. And uh, I'll uh, turn it over to anyone else who wants to chime in at this point. I'll, I'll jump in, Jeff, uh, before we turn to our guest, Jacob. And Jacob, I really want to hear about Franklin in particular, but I just want to make sure that my kind of big picture perspective is put on the table. You know, I lead a center in health and human rights. We have a very large migration portfolio globally. Um, and, you know, we have our kind of research team uses the term distress migration. You know, really, there is refugees who are forced out because of war and conflict. But more and more, we're seeing people who are simply unable to live in their communities, whether it's because of gang violence, climate change. And our world will need to start talking about migration in a little bit more of a human rights framing. Uh, I am really proud that Massachusetts has the right to shelter. I'm really proud that I have on my team people who work for Boston Healthcare for the Homeless. And But I have heard from them that it is reaching a breaking point. You know, you have health professionals with families living in hospitals. This was happening before trying to find shelter. So I am so grateful to Franklin and to you, Jeff, for framing it as, you know, this really is clearly a logistical challenge, but it's not, we should never question the moral and human rights duty that we have to people and to families, to children, because if they could be somewhere else, they would. Many of us, and, you know, sharing with Jeff personal stories, you know, my family um, is in Greece, you know, I'm I'm in many ways uh, an immigrant to this. And yes, I, I was born here because they were students. So there's other, you know, different people come to the U.S. different ways. And uh, but we're all human and many, many countries around the world take in refugees, which we don't because we don't have borders with conflict countries. You know, so this is not simply a challenge of the U.S. And I think the moral high ground, the moral um, sort of welcoming nature of most people is really central and debunking the the sort of misunderstandings that you just did, Jeff. Uh, is really helpful. But just reminding people that these are just people, families trying to protect their children from from, you know, from violence and from a future that they just don't see possible. That doesn't mean that it's not a logistical challenge and that we need to step in and think through how to do this in a way that supports, you know, the host communities too, um, supports school systems if you suddenly have uh, to integrate kids that don't speak English. Like we, that is though a bureaucratic technical solution 
And we should always start with the moral rights base that, you know, we as a community believe that people who are here um, need to be given the, you know, the right to shelter and also the right to education, I would say the right to health. So that's my big picture framing. And Jacob, I'm so glad that you're here. I'd love to to hear from you. But I see Michael is, uh, has joined us too. Michael Walker-Jones, a higher education consultant, recently, very recently retired. How are you, sir? I'm doing wonderful. And uh, also, let me welcome you, Jacob. Uh, it is absolutely wonderful to have you here. I'm looking forward to hearing how we in Franklin uh, not only can help your effort, but also one of the uh, real key insights that I'm looking for is how we as a community are helping to integrate uh, these recent immigrants into our community. That is, as Natalia pointed out, education into our community spirit programs. That's our recreational programs for kids, engaging parents, engaging those of us who are willing to even learn a little bit of the language so we can become more of not just a host, but a neighbor. And I think that's a key component as well. So Jacob, welcome. I'd also like to uh, uh, welcome our founder, uh, who's here with us today, and to acknowledge that, Frank, it's always good to see you. Frank Fralvi, this community knows Frank well, and I hope in my retirement I can become 1% uh, uh, as well-known as, as uh, much of a commentator, if you will, on Franklin events uh, as Frank. So, uh, Jacob, how's it going? It's going great. Thank you for having me here. I, uh, I wanted to follow up on both Jeff and Natalia and just say... I wholeheartedly agree that the efforts that the state is trying to accomplish by providing housing for all these people is nothing short of heroic. I mean, let's just say what it is. It's a massive task, and I think it, it should be lifted up that while the challenges we are facing, just like Natalia said, are kind of strategic and technical, the responsibility to care shouldn't be an argument. These are human beings. And I think some of the language missteps that have happened in the in the narrative that we've created around all of this has been highly prob problematic. So when we throw out language like illegal alien, immigrant, even the more neutral terms like refugee and migrant, we sometimes have baggage that we put on those terms and jump to some stereotypes that aren't necessarily accurate. And now we're having to unravel that knot that we've created by that inconsistent narrative. So the Interfaith Council has actually taken what I would say is a pretty proactive step to drop all of those terms altogether and say that what is needed is a humanitarian effort for those who have been placed in this emergency shelter, which is the verbiage that was used um, in the original press release from the town of Franklin. Uh, so over the last several weeks, the Interfaith Council has banded together and we've done our best uh, to work with other agencies in town to begin to address the needs, uh, the social concerns and needs that have been expressed. This is hot off the press, so you all are the first to hear about it. By the time this airs, it will be uh, hopefully all set in place, but we're actually working to streamline the, the process of assessing needs and bringing in and soliciting the donations and then distributing them. And that is uh, being facilitated by a really strong partnership between the Franklin Interfaith Council and the SAFE Coalition. So, uh, so that everyone is clear on how we're addressing these needs, which, which are not currently being 
met by the state uh, is to have the safe coalition is going in and helping assess the needs on a room by room basis. They'll then then communicate with the interfaith council, and we will be putting out uh, kind of weekly appeals for donations and support from the community. Once we've received the things that we need to meet the needs, then uh, we'll have volunteers go back in and and deliver those items to the the specific families that needed them. Uh, This is a a massive step because each of the families that come to us or come into Franklin have unique needs based on how far their journey has been to get here uh, and what their backstory is. So it is a bit of arrogance, I think, to assume on, on all of our parts that everyone needs the same thing because they because they don't. So we're trying to make a real conscious effort of assessing the individual needs and meeting those individual needs rather than making uh, assumptions about what those needs might be. Uh, so I'm excited to get that process up and rolling. It's been a little disjointed, quite frankly, I think it's not just the the state that's overwhelmed. It's also the town of Franklin and even the nonprofits in town. And I think we are just now really getting our feet underneath of us to really welcome and provide hospitality and exceptional resources to folks as they arrive. Well, as you say, it's it's it certainly is not uh, it's not just confined to Franklin. I know that uh, the other ninety plus communities across the state are feeling that they. I mean, they've North Attleboro has already already said that they're out of money. Now, Franklin has not it has not cost this town of Franklin anything thus far. All the funds are coming from uh, from the the state. But there are other communities that have uh, put their own funds into it. And that's these those have dried up already. So it's it's a statewide, but it's a nationwide uh, issue also, as everyone I think is is aware. Uh, New York City is uh the the mayor there eric adams has already uh put out a call saying that you know we're overloaded we can't handle anymore my church has done a great deal the church that i attend in hopkinton uh has done a great deal with uh, the local haitian communities there and we have a campus in framingham so we're working a lot with uh, uh brazilian uh refugees refugees from south america central america so it's a it is a nationwide and a worldwide issue, and it I think is going to call in the future here, the very near future, for a great reshaping of opinions and viewpoints. How do we do that and present it as something that is not just something reaching for a higher moral ground, but something that operates on a very basic level, as Michael said, as neighbors. How do you treat your neighbor? I oh, mean, that's, you know, uh, there's well, a there's a uh, and I, I don't want to uh, take over the pastor's job, but uh, I I've, I grew up with the, the phrase whatsoever you do to the least of my brothers that you do unto me. And, uh, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. Those are those are phrases in, in, in parts of the Bible that I grew up with. Uh, and that's important. I did want to touch upon the financial piece because that also is something that has uh, raised a lot of uh, concerns. I can tell you that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is pushing the federal government to fund these efforts, uh, and we are reaching out uh, to our congressional delegation uh, to see to it that uh, this, which is indeed a federal problem, 
we have been pushing for immigration reform uh, going back to the days of Ronald Reagan. And uh, our, our Congress has not stepped up to the plate to do that work. I don't expect it to happen anytime soon, given the fact that we can't even get a Speaker of the United States House of Representatives uh, in place. And certainly you can't move legislation without uh, leadership at the federal level. But we are continuing to push and do expect that the federal government will step up to the plate with funding to help us uh, with these programs. In the meantime, folks, uh, particularly in Franklin, should understand that the state has committed to pay the room tax, the hotel tax for each of these rooms committed for up to 90 days. Uh, they are required to pay it and they will pay it. I have asked uh, the Franklin officials to give me an estimate of what they have received from hotel tax revenues over the past five years so that we can make sure that uh, that Franklin doesn't receive less. Um, I suspect that Franklin actually may receive more the uh, hotel tax revenue because I can't believe that the Best Western Hotel was ever 100% occupied uh, for any period of time. But that remains to be seen. We're looking at those numbers. So I don't suspect we'll get a financial loss from the hotel tax revenue. As far as the school children are concerned, for each day that a child occupies a Franklin school, uh, the, common, uh, the community, Franklin, will receive $104 per day per student. That's a lot of cash coming into the community to help fund these. So uh, I will take issue with anyone who says that uh, this is a financial burden on the community because the state and the federal government are stepping in. Yeah, there's probably utilizing more public safety resources as they respond to calls at the place. We haven't yet figured out a way to uh, compensate communities for that, but uh, certainly something we're looking at. And I thought that that should be uh, put out on the table today as well. I am always reluctant to debate my good friend, Jeff, but let me... Uh... Uh, but let me throw hey, out. Bring it on, man. Bring yeah, it on. Okay. <laughs> I'm here. I'm I'm alive and I've had my coffee this morning. Uh, well, you're better than me. I haven't had my coffee yet, but here, but here goes. There are opportunity costs, as you know, and there are costs that are not covered. For example, as the school district starts to gear up with students, especially in the foreign language area. Uh, they may not necessarily have the staff that's needed in order to be able to help uh, the students in the same way as you would a regular student coming in, and especially in terms of some instant volume that's created. Uh, but this is not necessarily a bad thing. I just want to make sure that we're uh, that the community is is not hung up on. Oh yeah, all of the costs are covered. Not all of the costs are covered or covered at the level that they need to be. Now that being said, I still think that Franklin, as well as all of the other communities, have a responsibility uh, to our new neighbors uh, to make not only their living here as normal and as comfortable as possible. Uh, but we also have a responsibility to, and here's where Jeff, you and I are in constant agreement on this. We've got to push our delegation. We've got to push our congressional uh, delegation 
uh, uh, to the nth degree on this. This and a whole nother. Are you number. willing to come out of your retirement to be the United States Speaker <laughs> of the House? You don't have to be a member of Congress. Are mm -hmm. you willing to do that? Will you make I that sent commitment? That, I sent that letter yesterday, and <laughs> Jim Jordan has not responded to me. I told him to step aside. Let me go ahead and take that particular position. Uh, and he refused. So they're still voting on him. And ultimately, they may get to me. I don't know. Uh, uh, but I actually, I'd like to, <laughs> but I'd like to see Jacob uh, and others help us to understand how we as community members. And I think it's it's also uh, important for us to not just rely upon one segment of our uh, non-governmental organization to carry all of that burden. I think we as private citizens have a responsibility. I think that, uh, you know, not only does the town, but also those of us who are independent uh, need to help uh, carry some of that responsibility. So uh, and it's not just a matter of donations. Uh, Jacob, help us understand where we if I'm a private citizen um, and I'm a member of St. Mary's Parish, uh, how can I as an individual sort of go out there and uh uh, especially with with a little bit of time on my hands, how can I help? What can I do? So there's uh, several things you can do. I want to step back real quick and say uh, there are costs that are not being carried, and it does. There's a challenge not only at the federal level and the state level, but also at the local level with a lack of direct social services available by the town of Franklin. So I think that does very much need to be said. That being said, I think the town is doing their best to provide the services necessary and fill in gaps with non-governmental groups like the Interfaith Council, the Safe Coalition, the Y, et cetera, to provide for those needs. Now, to your question, um, I think there are several ways, and I want to start with the negative first. First, don't just go out there because that's not necessarily the most helpful thing. A lot of these people have experienced some sort of trauma. So just to show up and think that you're going to kind of wear a cape and provide amazing help is not as helpful as you would want it to be. So I think that's the first thing. Sending donations out there, even showing up to help in person without coordinating with another group is really probably more detrimental than helpful. So I want to start there. There are other ways that are in the works. Uh, so it's important to not just kind of check people off in boxes. They've gotten their vaccines, they've gotten registered for school, et cetera. What these individuals need is person-to-person -person human interaction. These are people. They're not just what, however else you want to classify them. And they need to be shown compassion. They need to be shown love. Uh, and they need to have normal interactions with normal people and not just people in authority. Uh, and so we're trying within the Interfaith Council and with our other nonprofit organizations to create opportunities for some uh, integration and interaction between those who are in the hotel and those who are uh, kind of regular everyday citizens outside of the hotel. Uh, and we're doing that in a couple of ways. So we're trying to get an after school program started. So this would be, uh, David, a great opportunity for someone like yourself to be able to go out and interact with uh, parents and children to provide some basic homework help, but not necessarily tutoring. This is just an opportunity for some structured time 
uh, you, we all can imagine, I think, especially for any of us that have had kids, trying to raise a child in a hotel room is less than ideal. Uh, and there is not a lot for them to do. So providing an on-site after-school program is a key component to providing some one-on-one -on -one human interaction in a structured, positive kind of way. There are other things in the works that we're attempting to put together, a communal meal, for instance, so we can gather uh, people from the community, both in the hotel and outside the hotel, to eat together. That's a basic human thing, right? To share table with one another. Uh, and I would argue there's nothing more uh, humanizing and kind of bringing inherent worth and dignity to a situation than not just sharing air with one another, but actually breaking bread with one another around the table. There are amazing logistical challenges to all of these human interactions, though. Uh, and, and that is the hotel that's been contracted by the state is meant for transient business people and isn't even set up for anything like conference. So the community room that's there houses a very small group of people. The community room in the hotel, I don't know what the official, you know, fire department capacity of that room is, but, you know, basically 30, 40 people is probably the shoulder to shoulder max to sit people down and eat together. Well, there's 300 people there now. So how do you, the logistics of making that work is, is incredibly complicated, but those are two very practical in the works right now. If you're interested in helping with those things, you can reach out directly to me. Uh, there are more things in the works, but those are two concrete examples to, for us to think about. Jeff, Colby Frangelo uh, is on the board of directors of GATRA. And I see that GATRA has got to play in all communities a very essential role in transporting these individuals to doctor's appointments, to uh, the library, uh, to senior center, uh, to to be able to go shopping. It seems to me that that agency is critical. Now, they charge $2 to ride on the Gatra bus, at least in this area. And I wanted to make a donation so that I would help pay some of the cost of those two bucks per individuals. But Colby is, says he's not sure that the state could allow donations for that specific purpose. How do we set up nuts and bolts like helping to pay for the transportation uh, of GATRA in local communities of people oh. that want to make a donation? Yeah, I'm not sure about the uh, inability to make donations, but I, I will share with you that uh, in last year's budget, uh, we included $20,000 to subsidize GATRA transportation around Franklin. So the fare is not $2, it was $1 per ride, uh, and that is being subsidized by uh, the state budget. We didn't include it in this fiscal year, but I do understand that the town of Franklin is subsidizing those rides. So I'm thinking that the, the better uh, avenue for you to make a donation is to the town of Franklin uh, for their GATRA subsidy fund. 
because uh, that's what we did. The state put it in the budget, gave it to the town of Franklin to include in a fund that they could use to subsidize the riding. I'm a big fan of uh, getting people to use the GATRA because I think once people start using the GATRA system, uh, we might get more people using it and more routes and, and uh, you know more uh, availability. So um, I would encourage you to make that donation to Franklin. Did you say that this year there's no you didn't send any funding? Not from Franklin? the Commonwealth. We we did it. All right, Franklin. Last fiscal all, year. Franklin only has like two hundred dollars or five hundred dollars in their budget to to allow people to go to the food pantry or senior citizens to go to the senior center. Uh, my understanding, is, and they have not responded in any way back to me that they would accept any donation for that purpose. Could you make a phone call if you have a chance? It's yeah, not I, I might bump into like Kobe this. in the next few days. Yeah, yeah. you might. It, it's, it's the organization. Like, Franklin, how do we organize and set up an efficient organizational way to approach this problem? I think, as, as uh, Jacob was saying, we can't have every one going off and doing their own thing. There needs to be a more centralized way of flowing help uh, within a community, I think, to help humanitarily. Uh, and uh, Jacob, uh, didn't the Interfaith Council set up a way that donations could funnel through them? Yes. So actually, as of uh, the day we're taping the, the yesterday, uh, the Interfaith Council has set up a local humanitarian aid fund that people who want to make donations to monetary donations to support aid to people at the Best Western Hotel uh, can do that. You can make donations by going to franklininterfaith.org and there's a giving uh, there's a giving link on our website. You can make a donation there and 100 percent of those funds will be des designated to humanitarian relief. Uh, in the immediate to this specific cause. I would say, uh, Jeff, it is my understanding that for those in the Best Western, they are being charged $2 per ride. So I think that might be worth checking to make sure that that's being uh, allocated appropriately. Uh, that being said, that's another challenge to integration for the people that are have been placed here in Franklin is that the hotel's in the middle of nowhere uh, and they they have a long walk to get to anything and are reliant upon uh, GATRA uh, for a phone call to come out there. I will say that the FISH organization is also uh, providing rides to medical appointments. And for anyone that would like to help with that, I can get the contact information before we're, before we're done with this recording. Uh, that would be another way uh, an immediate way for people to help. FISH is an organization of volunteers who helps transport people to medical appointments. And that's an amazing thing. But again, if we're talking about integration into the community at large, that doesn't help one get to the grocery store or or to any other access to things that they might need beyond a medical appointment. Can we also, and Natalia, I'd really love to hear, because you've had, your organization probably has the most experience around the world looking at what type of infrastructure is needed when you bring uh, folks into your community, you 
uh, tried to provide them with a normal kind of pattern uh, of existence. Um, and it seems to me that one of the areas that's really critical, and I remember a friend of mine who, when the when the folks in Louisiana were confronted with uh, one of the most horrific storms ever, and they needed to find shelter outside of Louisiana and New Orleans, that we opened up a community on the Cape uh, at one of the military bases, and there was an appointee from the community who basically asked, uh, acted like uh, the mayor of the community, helping to bring the services and get the people uh, sort of integrated into the community. So it, can you give us some examples, uh, and Jacob, please help us in understanding what infrastructure already exists, uh, not only in terms of the Interfaith Council, but it seems to me that you know, uh, for example, something as simple as a meal. Well, some of the churches have the ability for a scheduled meal together opened up to uh, uh, community members who may want to either bring dishes or who may want to participate. Uh, and I'm just looking for some advice and some uh, sort of understanding of what that infrastructure might look like. And are we meeting that particular need? Michael, I can jump in with the sort of the big picture. And your question to me is probably, you know, I'm not best placed in the sense that my center has typically done a lot of work on migration and refugee studies in the global setting and where the host community is really resource poor. You know, this is what happens in most conflicts. You have a conflict and the community that is taking over the refugees, whether it's Syrian refugees in Lebanon or, uh, you know, across Africa, like the host community itself is also a poor community. So some of the challenges, you know, we've seen it also, Greece has been a host community. Um, and I know what we've done wrong in Greece, you know, there's a lot of these kind of militarizing or creating these sort of, you know, refugee camps that are not, you know, in a refugee camp, it's easy because then you provide food, shelter, everything like that, but it's not about integration. And so uh, I don't think those models really work for what we're talking about, but what actually you know, what you just said, and, and maybe Jeff knows the answer to this, during a natural disaster, FEMA and other sort of structures get activated. I know during like Ebola and COVID, you know, there's usually a sort of an activation in health departments that you create a parallel structure so that you do have like incident command and, you know, making sure that everything is met. Has anything been activated at the federal level um, that is you know, really organizing across housing, food, education needs. Like this is a complex challenge and I don't think we can patch it up bottom up. I mean, I think I'm grateful to Jacob and to the community groups, you know, the ones, the volunteers who are offering, but systemically, I don't think that's the best strategy to just say we have this patchwork of volunteers and organizations. Like that has to be accompanied with a very clear top down, like these people have multiple needs and these need to be met. So, you know, I don't know, Jeff, do you have an answer to that in terms of how leadership, who is responsible at the sort of for this? I don't know about what's happening at the federal level. Um, I will say that um, I lack confidence in the federal government these days. Um, and I have seen a shift uh, of many of the issues that traditionally the federal government would handle have gone down to the states and the states are stepping up uh, to fill in the gaps. And, and that's that's unfortunate. 
On the other hand, I will say that uh, the governor most uh, earlier this week uh, appointed General Rice uh, as the lead point person. Uh, he was the former uh, head of the National Guard in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, he took uh, he retired a few years ago and he's been uh, reactivated uh, to come in and lead this effort uh, on a statewide basis. And I know that the National Guard was called in uh, a few weeks ago to have uh, a presence at each of these uh, locations across the Commonwealth. And they are uh, there to handle the logistical uh, issues that come in place. So that's the that's the latest there. And I'm sure we'll hear more from uh, General Rice uh, as this uh, uh, as this crisis continues. I wish I knew the answer to your question exactly, you know, what are, what is everything a person needs? I mean, that, that's the, that's a huge question. I, I do think that some of the challenges we're experiencing here locally are problems we've known about for a while. So for instance, it's amazing that our community is able to open its doors and provide for basic human needs. But what happens when all these individuals do get their work permits? Uh, what jobs are they going to be able to get that will afford them the opportunity to live in the town that has now cared for them for however long that that has happened? Uh, and I don't, I don't want to place fault on any one person, group, political party, or governmental agency, right? But I think this is the real challenge of the moment of... We want to provide not only for the basic needs, but how is it that we can empower the people that have been placed in our community to make a home in the community we love and we want them to love too? Uh, and and that that is a crisis. Well, uh, I, I think uh, actually Governor Healy has <clears throat> did address that uh, last Monday, and uh, as, as you know, in another part of the speech she made. But she is uh, attempting to provide pathways out of the shelter system. And, and understand, this is not housing. This is shelter. And what she's looking for is expanding the uh, rental assistance programs in the state and also launching two programs aimed at, aimed at uh, helping migrants get skills uh, training while they work for worth work while they wait for work authorization. So there are programs that um, she is actively putting in place and working towards to integrate people into the community, because that's a great number of these, as we've seen in the history of our country, people come here and if they're given the opportunity and they are given the assistance uh, and sometimes without it, they make their place and they stay here because we do offer uh, at least on the local level and more regional level, we can be more focused on accepting people into the community. We can be highly focused on not accepting them into the community also, but that's something we we count on the grassroots movements to to alter thinking. And I think that's a great deal of what the issue is here today is how do we view these people? Do we view them as interlopers? Do we view them as invaders? Um, I know that I've talked to friends uh, who have children in the school system who fear 
the influx of non-English speaking students is going to cut away from the programs necessary for their children to thrive. That's the way they view it. I cannot attack them. I don't have children. I've never had children in the school system, but I have always supported more funds for schools because that's where the future always is, is in the schools. Don't abandon them because you're not actively a part of it, but keep them rich, keep them moving. We have the issue of uh, the uh, ag, the um, tech school, Franklin uh, Tech School, being needing a huge refurbishment, a rebuilding. Basically, that's something I would support. So I think it's where we have to adjust attitudes to a certain extent and show that these are people who are, at the very least, um, as I've heard said many times, voting with their feet. They've left an area where they cannot thrive. They cannot feel safe. They can't be secure. They come here and albeit they may have they may have unrealistic attitudes to a certain extent. They have they have ideas that there's something here for them and their family. And that's what we have to show them is, yes, there is something here for you and your family. And again, that's that's on the one to one basis. That's citizen to citizen. And this is what they're aiming towards is citizenship. And that's what we need to bring them towards is citizenship. And, you know, I I am a firm believer, too, that there are many instances where we are not looking at creative solutions. For example, we have a number of and now I'm going to talk a little bit about. Uh, can you hold on just a second, Jeff? Just just a minute, because I, I, I need you for this piece. Uh, so I'm I'm really curious about a creative solution. One of them is that the state is, uh, you know, is putting in uh, millions of dollars into this effort of trying to help. And at the same time, we're not really looking at long term or midterm kinds of solutions. For example, taking many of our abandoned buildings, uh, in some cases, huge campuses of buildings that have been abandoned and not only helping to create jobs around those with people helping to refurbish and improve those buildings, but also to use those buildings in a way that will become uh, uh, condos or permanent housing for some of our new neighbors. Davis Thayer's, the Davis Thayer School is a prime example for that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, uh, And I'm thinking, I haven't looked recently and stuff, but I'm thinking about the old Rentham Hospital in terms of Again, uh, buildings that have the capability of, in these days and times, of being actually uh, given the cost of new construction for some of the renovations that are needed. If we can get people to not only work there, but also to use it as a training center, uh, some of those particular opportunities are there. And the state can pour millions of dollars into something that has a short uh, a, a moderate, not short, but uh, but a a moderate and then a long term impact on the community. And I encourage you, Jeff, to start looking at uh, because hotels, I think Jacob has made a really great argument. Hotels are not the solution. They're temporary. They're patchwork. Uh, and I think Natalia has made a point, too, that we are not a community that is lacking in terms of potential resources. We have the ability in this country. Uh, to do a lot. Uh, and I think we lack the political or uh, the uh, uh, the legislative will in some instances to go down some of these paths. Uh, 
So how about I, two colleges that are uh, dormant right now? Well, I was actually was going to chime in uh, on that very point because uh, Mount Ida closed a couple of years yes. ago. Becker yes. College closed a year ago. And yes, indeed, those are on the list of uh, potential places where uh, housing is going to take place um, because they are available uh, and out there. And, and there are some others uh, that are across the state. I had not thought of Rentham. Uh, as a potential site, and I thank you for calling uh, that to my attention. But I can assure you, the Commonwealth is looking at every opportunity that's out there. And you know, you raise a, a, a good point when you say, you know, use some of these facilities to to train people. Um, one of the the things that I hear repeatedly going uh, throughout the state in my role as the chair of the Manufacturing Caucus is the number of jobs that are available in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that they simply can't fill because they do not have enough skilled workers to take them. Here's another great opportunity. And, and you go around to some of the companies in Franklin and you see sandwich boards out in front of these manufacturing facilities asking people, begging people to come in. And in the what they are offering people in terms of salaries and benefits to come and take these jobs is incredible. So there's there's no um, jobs being taken. We need jobs to be filled, and I think that this is an economic development opportunity uh, if we give them the appropriate training that they can step into these jobs. They can get out and buy their own place to live or rent, and they can contribute to the economy uh, by paying income taxes from uh, that employment, and they can be helping our businesses survive and thrive by taking these jobs. So uh, great point on the Rentham. I'm going to bring that up. And, and you, you will see some great discussions about housing over the next uh, couple of weeks. The governor filed her housing bond bill just yesterday, happens to be Ed Augustus, a former uh, chancellor at Dean College, who's heading up the housing secretariat for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So you'll hear a lot from him on this. But these issues will be part of that discussion uh, as we roll out a housing bond bill uh, from the legislature over the next couple of months. Well, I, and again, I will bring this up uh, again one more time. The place where I am leaving is my uh, uh, as my uh, uh, as I retire from Alabama, uh, I have brought to the attention not only of this group and our listeners, but they have programs in Alabama that are advancing work based learning as well as um, workforce development that we can model after without having to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and I encourage you, Jeff. Uh, as well as others, as you may recall, one of our guests, our prior guest, Emerson, who was the former uh, president of the uh, Massachusetts Home Improvement uh, Builders Association, uh, he's interested. We have people who are ready and willing to take up the mantle, not just talk about it. And that's one of the things, too, that I'm I'm very pleased to say that in my career, I've been much more of an activist uh, and uh, a person who wants to get things done. So I encourage not only the legislature, but also encourage all of us to start thinking creatively 
in how we can get things done, not just talk about them, not just look at legislation. But if the governor is going to put, for example, $10 million into a project, and let's take that money and immediately start, it, start to put it to work at every level we possibly can. I think that might be where we're going to close today on that point. I think we've had an amazing discussion that can can go on for quite a bit longer and would be well worth a revisit here in at the very least in just a couple of weeks. But I do want to really just wrap this up by saying that I think we've gotten some idea of how difficult this is going to be. But again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's an opportunity. It's a challenge. It's it's not something that we should be defeated by or look at as impossible and walk away from. And it's something that I feel is going to happen on a very one-to-one basis. Uh, one organization, one group, one person to the next person. But yeah, Jacob, uh, 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 let's see if Jacob has any closing words mm-hmm. for us, Nick. I, I have three things I want to make sure I mentioned before we get off. So the first is that if anyone listening to this would like to be receiving regular updates on donations and opportunities to volunteer, uh, all they need do is to contact me and the Interfaith Council. The easiest way to do that is by emailing info at franklininterfaith.org. We send out Uh, regular updates on what those needs are and how people can help fill them. Uh, So I think that's really important if you want to be a part of that. The other thing that I wanted to mention is I lifted up a fish, which helps get people to medical appointments. If folks would like to help uh, and or be vetted to volunteer with fish, you can call 508-528-2121. And they can get you hooked up and uh, vetted uh, in order to make those trips a possibility. The last thing I wanted to mention is I I read recently uh, a quote that I think is really profound. And it's from a Catholic priest uh, whose name is James Keenan. And he argued or said that uh, one way we should think about sin is the failure to bother to love. So sin is the failure to bother to love. Uh, I would hope that we wouldn't let our politics or our fear of the other, I hope we wouldn't let those things trap us and make us stumble into sin. I hope for everyone who listens to this, whether they're a religious person or not, that they'll at least bother for a moment to care and to open their heart and risk love for these people that are really just trying to make a better life for themselves. Father to love, friends. That's what I want to end with. Thank you very much, Pastor Junker. Well, another more perfect union hour has flown by, and we have to say goodbye until next week. Now, if, if you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. Or as always, if you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. Now, you can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime our pod, anytime 
And our podcasts are available online at our website, wfpr.fm. For our guest, Pastor Jacob Juncker from the Franklin United Methodist Church. Thank you very much, sir. Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, and our founder, Frank Falvey. And as always, our brilliant, brilliant engineer, Keith Palmieri, long-suffering, but he does stay with us. I don't know why. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.